If you do have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we're going to be in a special place here for a few weeks where Paul is going to be talking to the Ephesian elders. And so we basically are going to have a farewell message, a farewell message uh, that Paul gives to the Ephesian elders. And I'm going to do this in three uh, weeks together, three weeks together on this particular topic. And this week is Paul's faithful testimony of the past. So basically, Paul's going to review a little bit of his past ministry at Ephesus. And we're going to look at that this morning. Next week, we'll see some of the present uh, things going on. And then he's going to talk a little bit about the future, what the Ephesian elders need to be involved in uh, when he when he leaves from there, from, from uh, speaking to the Ephesian elders. So this is kind of a really famous passage in the Bible, and uh, we're going to jump into it this week, and I hope that you'll be blessed and encouraged. And so what we're going to do is pick up where we left off last week when Eutychus fell asleep and died, and he was raised from the dead, and I told you don't sleep in church, all right? So that's where we ended last week, and we're going to read 13 uh, this week, 13 to 21, and dive into this particular topic about Paul's faithful testimony of, of his time there in the past. So starting in verse 13, we read, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we went, uh, we, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to, be, uh, that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're grateful this morning to be able to dive back into your word here on this third missionary journey of Paul, heading now from Troas to Miletus. And I just pray as we are able to track with the kind of interaction he has with the Ephesian elders, that it would bring us great hope, that it would bring us great encouragement, that it would bring us great challenge of how we want to live our lives as those that would be oriented to Christ in, in, in all humility, loving you and serving our brothers and sisters in a way that would be a beautiful fragrance of the gospel in all that we do. And so thank you for the opportunity to study this text this morning, use it in our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, we know that uh, Paul was an incredible leader. We've been watching him throughout uh, his missionaries here in Acts, and I just wanted you to know that leadership is inspiring others by how you live. Leadership is inspiring others by how you live. Show me a leader, and I will show you a person who lives a life of faith, a life of sacrifice, and a life of serving others. Show me a leader and I'll show you someone who dares to be different, who has moved beyond mediocrity and who is visionary as well as faithful in the stewardship of their time and resources. Show me a leader and I will show you a follower who not only listens to what the leader says, but also seeks to do what the leader does. And we see that when we look at the Apostle Paul. He has incredible leadership qualities. And we look at the great messages that he preached, but we also look at the great life in which he lived. And in his book on spiritual leadership, Oswald Chambers writes this. He writes, no one needs, uh, excuse me, no one need aspire to leadership in the work of God who is not prepared to pay a price greater than his contemporaries and colleagues are willing to pay. True leadership exacts a heavy toll on the whole man, and the more effective the leadership is, the higher the price that is to be paid. 
And that's just the truth, isn't it? A good leader is going to spend himself for the sake of the gospel. We're talking about leadership in in the church and in gospel ministry. And and the biblical example of leadership is just that, that you would be willing to risk yourself, to spend yourself, not exalting yourself, but rather reducing yourself to serve, humbling yourself so that you can indeed serve others. And this is the New Testament model of leadership. That's the heart of leadership, inspiring others by how you live. This is true of Jesus who reminded his apostles, his disciples in John 13, 15, I gave you an example the night that he washed their feet. I gave you an example so that you should do as I do. So not only does Jesus want us to teach as he taught, but he wants us to do as he did. In the book of Hebrews, we're reminded to imitate what leaders before us have done. That's why Hebrews 13 verse 7 says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Peter even exhorted his fellow elders in 1 Peter 5.3. He says, don't be domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Paul exhorted the Corinthians not once but twice. He said in 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Again, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now listen to the instructions that Paul gave to the believers in Philippi, Philippians 3:17, brothers join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Philippians 4:9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. To the church of Thessalonica, Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, and 7, and you became imitators of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And finally, Paul's advice to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, 12, says, let no one despise you because of your youth, but set an, what? An example to the other believers, set an example in your speech and in your conduct and in your love, in your faith, in your purity. So we see it over and over and over again. Of course, we're a church that likes to to really emphasize doctrine, and we should, on the gospel and on all the other doctrines of the New Testament of justification and sanctification and glorification. But I'm just saying, there's also a great emphasis in the New Testament on how you live your life. And if you really want to inspire others, it's not just what you say, it's by how you live. It's by what you do. Which is why 1 Timothy 4.16 says, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who had a seminary where he had a pastoral school. And there's a book that, that, that records the lectures that he gives to his students. It's in fact called that, Lectures to My Students. And so Spurgeon in that book gives several exhortations to these young men in the ministry who are growing up. And in one part of that book, and one lecture is drawn from that verse, uh, uh, 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and teaching. And that particular section in Lectures to My Students is entitled, The Minister's Self-Watch. And after urging each student to examine his own salvation, Spurgeon transitioned to the need for the minister to guard his own pastoral character. And he writes this, he says, we have all heard the story of the man who preached so well and lived so badly that when he was in the pulpit, everybody said he ought to never come out again. And when he was out of it, they all declared that he should never enter it again. Too many preachers forget to serve God when they are out of the pulpit. Their lives are negatively inconsistent. And then he says this, abhor, dear brethren, the thought of being clockwork ministers who are not alive by abiding grace within, but are wound up by temporary influences. Men who are only ministers for the time being under the stress of the hour of ministering, but cease to be ministers when they descend the pulpit stairs. True ministers are always ministers. 
It is a horrible thing to be an inconsistent minister. Now, I take that to heart. That's a challenge for me. That's a challenge for all of us, whether you're a pastor or desiring to go into seminary or whether you're a Christian or a lay leader, a lay person. We talk about sometimes that distinction between an elder pastor and maybe a lay person, but this charge is really goes out to all of us just as Christians. It's a charge that we would be consistent Not perfect, I mean we strive to be perfect, but we know that's not literally possible, but we are definitely seeking to be consistent. We are are those who wanna be elders at our church, for example, that that want to live a consistent life of godliness. We, We must consistently care for the flock in word and indeed, and our, our supreme example, second only to the Lord Jesus Christ, I think, in the New Testament, would be the Apostle Paul. He, he modeled this in how he lived. He modeled this in how he taught. He, he modeled this, and this is kind of what he's reflecting on, is just his ability to encourage the Ephesian elders to continue. And so he walks them through what that being a godly elder looks like in the past time that he spent there in Ephesus, in the present, and then in the future. But my question to you this morning is, how are you doing in your consistency? Are you the same in public as that you are in private? Are you the kind of Christian who has that definite commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you inspire others by how you live? Can you live in such a way that people would be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ by watching your life? And so this morning, what we'll do in our first step, our first uh, passage, uh, our first sermon on this passage, is I'm going to give you five headings which will help us see Paul's faithful testimony to the Ephesians as he gives a little bit of a review of the past. So you see them there in your outline. We'll talk about how he invested in the elders, verses 13 to 18. He lived by example, the second half of verse 18, he was serving the Lord. Verse 19, he was declaring the truth, verse 20, and then he was testifying to the gospel, verse 21. So we're going to look at these five headings together this morning. We'll start with number one, investing in the elders. And in order to get there, your first blank says this, traveling to Miletus. So let's talk just for a brief moment about how he traveled to Miletus in verses 13 through 16. Again, it says, this is the day after daybreak, after Eutychus died, he was raised from the dead. The church was very encouraged by life that was given back to him. Verse 12, and then verse 13, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had so arranged, intending for himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came to the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos, and the next after that, we went to Miletus, for Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So just a few tidying up, a few details of his travel. This kind of continues his travel log, and we talked last week in depth about his travel log, and I told you, even if you're getting confused in all the cities that he's stopping at and going to, just notice he's always with people, he's always encouraging people at every place to love Christ and to to encourage them. And so at daybreak, after he leaves Troas, where Eutychus had died and been raised again, that very next morning when the dawn came up in these verses, now we see Paul traveling from Troas to Miletus. And Luke and some of the others, the verse, couple of verses here say, went on ahead of him, they set sail to Asos, which was about 20 miles from Troas. And there they planned to take Paul aboard with him as they were sailing around the peninsula, and basically Paul had decided just to walk across. So it was kind of like it's going to take almost the same time to sail all the way around as walking across. So this text talks about how he was walking across from Troas to Asos, and that could have been about a, about a 20 to 30 mile walk. And some commentators say that the reason he walked instead of traveling on the ship is because sometimes when you're having trouble saying goodbye, that you just kind of kind of keep walking with people to the door. You know, the people that you really love when you have over to your house, you walk them to the front door. You know, and if you really love, I mean, sometimes that's just to get rid of them. All right, but uh, sometimes it's just a nice thing to do. But if you really like them, then you walk outside with them all the way to their car. 
And then if you really like them, maybe your kids run down the road as they drive off and they chase them as fast as they can. So some would say that kind of mannerism is evident here where Paul's leaving Troas, but there was a lot of people who still wanted to just be with him. And so even while he's walking this 20, 30 miles to Asos while the ship's going around, they're just still walking with him. We, we don't see that clearly in the text, but it does seem there's some purpose behind why he decided to walk instead of go across. And so he's walking and he's building up these saints and he seems to be tirelessly available to these beloved people. And then when, when they get to, to, to Asos there, he does hop in the boat, as these verses say, and they sail the following day just opposite Chios, which was known, by the way, as the birthplace of Homer, who wrote the Iliad. And then the next day, they went to Samos, which just happens to be the birthplace of the mathematician Pythagoras. And then the next day, they land in Miletus. And you say, well, why did they travel so much, about 20 to 30 miles per day? Some say that was the way the wind carry the ship, it would carry about so far with the day breeze versus the night breeze, they would stop, get out the next day, go a little bit further, but they finally get to Miletus, a city, which was about 30 miles south of Ephesus. And again, verse 16 says that Paul didn't want to go back to Ephesus. I mean, it wasn't because he didn't love the Ephesians. We're about to read how he interacted with the Ephesian elders in a very special way. But he was in a hurry, as verse 16 says, to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. He had wanted to get there by Passover. It didn't happen. So now he's desperate to get there by Pentecost. But when he does land in Miletus, he does, as verse 16 says, that he, he's, while he's hustling, he's going to end up sending, verse 17 is what, where we'll see it, he's going to send for the Ephesian elders to come join him in Miletus. So apparently the ship at that time on which Paul had been sailing day by day was going to remain in Miletus for several days at port. And so Paul took that time to instruct and exhort the leaders of the key church of Ephesus. And so, so great was his concern that he could not pass up the opportunity to give the Ephesian elders one final word of exhortation and encouragement. And the believers of Ephesus were a crucial uh, work of, of Christ in the gospel. They, they were a foothold in Asia. It was from Ephesus that these other churches were planted, the ones mentioned even of the seven churches of Revelation. And so he wanted to spend some special time with the leadership. And so in traveling again from Troas to Miletus, we just simply see this valuable portrait of Paul emulating the Lord Jesus Christ, a man who was just completely devoted to his Savior, a man who labored in season and out of season, a man who was tireless and he was relentless and he was continuous in his love for the gospel and his love for people. And when I think about that, I can't help but think about the sentiment that we're sharing here. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're talking about leadership, inspiring others how you live. It's not just what you say, but it's what you do. And maybe we see this picture here best in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, when Paul writes to the church, you know, there in Thessalonica, and he says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So he's reminding them, look, I wasn't just here to preach at you and to share the truth, which is of utmost importance to preach the truth. But I also wanted to be like a nursing mother that kind of took upon that, that idea of a nurturer and that I wanted to treat you as a mom would her children, verse eight, being so affectionately desirous of you. So it's not like, man, I just wanna to preach to the people and get out of here and do my next thing. He wanted to build relationship. And so it says in verse eight, not only were we affectionately desirous of you, but we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. Now, anytime I, I see that, I, I just kind of cringe for a quick second. What do you mean not only? Like, isn't that all that it's about? It's just about the gospel. There's nothing else that matters. Certainly, Paul's not going to jump into thoughts doctrine. Not only did I want to talk to you about the gospel, but I wanted to talk to you about something else. No, that, of course, he's not going to veer from the gospel, but what does verse 8 say? It says, not only were we share with you, we're ready to share with you the gospel of God, but what? But also our own selves. So you see that emphasis. Not only did I want to preach the gospel, minister the word, I wanted to share my life with you. I wanted to share time with you. I wanted to build relationship with you. I wanted to live life together with you and share our own lives together because you have become very dear to us. This is the mindset that we get of Paul. Again, not just a traveling preacher, 
but a traveling discipler, one who spent quality time desiring to be in the life of others. And I just think as people today in the 21st century, we're so busy, aren't we? And we, we travel from place to place too, right? I told you last week I was in Kansas City and this week I was out at Palm Desert doing a, a board meeting and you're traveling here for work and there to see family and of course to the beach as often as you can. And, and so as we're traveling, are you investing your life in people? Are you loving people with how you spend your conversations and how you talk with them and interact with them? That's a little bit of what we see here in this, in this part of the section that we're looking at. In fact, look, look at the next couple of verses, the next blank there in your outline says, talking to the Ephesian elders. Here's where we start to see their conversation, verse 17 and 18. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, and I'll just pause right there, I'm just kind of emphasizing right now, he wants to send for them, he wants to talk for them. And who is it that he wants to talk to? He wants to talk to the Ephesian elders. Now remember, it was at the beginning of chapter 19, just the previous chapter, that we read about how Paul arrived in Ephesus, that he was working together with Aquila and Priscilla, that he spent much time there ministering in the Jewish synagogue, and then they faced such stubborn opposition that he left the synagogue and he went and taught in the hall of Tyrannus, and then he continued to preach the word of God, and in addition to preaching the word of God with power at Ephesus, he saw believers filled with the Holy Spirit, he saw them speaking in tongues, he cast out demons, he healed the sick, and through his ministry, the word of God continued, chapter 19, verse 20 says, continued to increase and prevail mightily. He was there for a total of about three years in ministry, and while he was there preaching, sharing his life, working miracles, God was doing all kinds of stuff in Ephesus, there's another thing he did while he was in Ephesus that had lasting impact. It made a great, a great uh, uh, impact on the church there, and that was he appointed elders. He appointed elders to serve the congregation. Paul would not be there forever, and so he appointed elders that would be there, and that's what we read about when it says he sent for the elders of the church, the, the leaders of the church, and this was Paul's habit. His habit was plant a church, you know, preach the gospel, plant a church, raise up elders, put them in charge, and then I got to move on to the next place. And we saw, we saw that back in Acts 14, verse 23. It says, when, they, he, he, when he had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We read about that in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, when Paul was writing to Titus, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put, to, uh, put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so we can see really what's happening is there's a transition between the apostolic ministry and an elder ministry. So the way that works is that basically Jesus appointed apostles and then the apostles, as Jesus died, was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, the apostles are going out doing their ministry, and now the apostles are appointing elders. And then we see elders appointing future elders. So the way this works is, again, Christ appointed apostles. That office is going to expire with the death of the last apostle, but they were already appointing elders to look after the church, and then those elders would, in effect, be appointing new elders. So since this is the first time the word elder has come up, or not, not the first time, but the first time in just a little while in Acts, let's just be reminded of what an elder is. So just there in your outline, I gave you three words that are used to define um, the, the idea of what an elder is in the New Testament a pastor elder, number one is just that word elder, and in the Greek, it's the word presbyteros, presbyteros, and so that's kind of where we get our word Presbyterian from, and the presbyteros literally means maturity or with age, and I personally believe, along with most in our camp, if you will, that the emphasis is on spiritual maturity, not just a man with gray hair who serves as an elder, because you can have gray hair and not know the gospel, 
right? So, and it's not saying that any young man who knows the gospel should be an elder because you could be a young man who knows the gospel, but you don't have true spiritual maturity. And so the idea behind this office of elder probably is best seen, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 3, just so you see what, what we're discussing here. We're talking about this a little bit in our new members class about why is it that we have elders and how do they function? And 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, along with Titus chapter 1, 5 through 9, are the two places that give us an idea of what they're supposed to be doing. And it says, the saying is trustworthy, 1 Timothy 3.1, that if anyone aspires to the office, so there's a formality to it, to the office of overseer, uh, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So that's talking a little bit about his character and it's talking about the spiritual giftedness that 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 individual may have. It doesn't only mean that he preaches in the pulpit every Sunday. He might teach a Sunday school class. He might teach a small group. He might be able to divide the word accurately in a counseling session. So not all elders are necessarily the main preacher, though I think they could all get up and preach a a message in this pulpit. And 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 then it goes on, verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his own children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So again, a little bit about his character, a little about the skill of teaching, but now like the practical place to see it is look at the pastor's home. Look at the elder's home. Are his children faithful? Are they someone, I didn't say perfect, you know, but is there loving discipline, discipleship? Is there, is there emphasis of the home that, it, that he wouldn't ignore or neglect his home, but pour into developing uh, the, the spiritual attitude of what a godly home would look like? And of course, God's got to grant salvation. God's got to grant spiritual growth, but at least the pastor and his wife, certainly, if he's married and working together at that. And then it says in verse six, he must not be a recent convert, he, he, so again, spiritual maturity can't happen overnight. There's, it takes time to grow and mature. And then he must, be, he must not become puffed up with conceit. If he was appointed as an elder, it's a temptation to be prideful early on. And, and, and that temptation can continue for sure. But, um, but, he, but we don't want him to fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. That kind of defines the office or the, 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 the um, part of what an elder should be doing. So there's the word elder or presbyteros, which is the word used here referring to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. And then the second word, there's three words that define the same office. The second word is the word overseer. Overseer, in the Greek, it's the word episkopos. So we get our, our word, the episcopal. So Presbyterian uh, churches, denominations get their word from presbyteros. The Episcopal church gets their word from this episkopos, overseer. You could also just jot down the word bishop would be another way that could be translated. An overseer has to do a little bit more with practical responsibility to oversee and manage uh, everything that's happening in that spiritual context, which is why if you looked down back to Acts 20, down a little bit further to verse 28, it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So there's the idea that you're managing the, primarily the spiritual affairs of individuals that are part of the flock because that's what the Holy Spirit's called you to be an overseer in God's church and that you're going to oversee and you're also going to care. You see where it says in verse 28, you overseers are to care. Well, that's the word number three in your outline. That's the word poimain or the word pastor. The word poimain or pastor, this one is in uh, typically in a verbal standpoint. The others are nouns. This is a, a verb, most often used as a verb in the New Testament. And to pastor is to shepherd. It's to feed. It's to lead. It's, it's to know your sheep and to protect your sheep. All of those, those terms of what a shepherd would be doing. And we see that explained somewhat in 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Again, Paul, Peter here is writing and he says, I exhort the elders. By the way, Peter's an apostle. 
but he's writing to the elders, and he says that he's a fellow elder, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, so the progression from apostolic ministry to elders leading the local church, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd, there's your word, poimain, shepherd the flock that is among you exercising oversight. So that goes back to the word, again, of episkopos, the bishop overseeing, not under compulsion, not willingly as God would have you, not for shame, but willingly, excuse me, willingly as God would have you, not for shameful game, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so when we read about the Ephesian elders, I just wanted you to be reminded of those three words. This is the kind of qualifications that these men must have to faithfully serve as the leaders of the church. And that was true for the elders of Ephesus. And we would hold to that same conviction for our elders today, that they would have these same character traits, these same uh, giftedness from God, and the same example that they're setting before the body as under shepherds, under the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul sends for them, back to Acts chapter 20, and they're more than willing to walk the 30 miles, uh, by the way, to Miletus, as Paul's going to be there for a few days, and he's going to exhort them one final time. And so not only was Paul dedicated to appointing elders in each church, but he's also, number two in your outline, our next major heading, he's, he's going to review here how he did his best to live by example. He was living by example, and first, under that heading, we see that Paul was a tent maker, he was a tent maker, verse 18. So he, he brought them out. They came to Miletus, and he says to them, now in the middle of 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So he's just reminding them, hey, when I first got here three years ago, this is how I lived, and Paul, he had worked as a tent maker. We had read about this in Acts 18, verse 3, that he was of the same trade as a tent maker. He stayed with them, that would be Aquila and Priscilla, as he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And so this is talking about the fact that, that Paul worked he was a hard worker, and that was a big deal in the early church in particular because there were a lot of false teachers that were demanding money, and they were saying, hey, for me to come and serve you, or if you want a little bit of what I got, you owe me money, and so Paul was very clear to say, you know, I can't confuse these newer believers by all of these false teachers, so I'm just not going to demand money. Even though I could, I'm not going to demand it. I'm going to work hard, and he worked as a tent maker. He was a tent maker by profession, but also your next blank says that he was a hard worker, he was a hard worker. So he says in, in 2 Thessalonians, in verse, chapter 2, verse 9, uh, right after what we talked about, how he endeared the, his own life to them, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So again, he's just reminding the Ephesian elders of an attitude that they need to have. They need to be hard workers. They need to be willing not to demand from the body a certain amount of pay or a certain amount of provision. And if needed, maybe they need to be willing to work like he did. Uh, he's saying that we didn't eat, 2 Thessalonians 3.8, we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right. He's saying, so we did have a right to receive money from you, but we chose not to exercise that to, to, give, to give in ourselves an example for you to imitate. So we just didn't want them demanding it. Now, again, at this point, you might be asking, well, why do we pay you? You know, if he's like, he's a tent maker, and why do we pay anything? Well, there's other passages in the New Testament, and I'm getting a little bit further away from what I want to address, but there's other passages that talk about don't muzzle the ox, and so that you would give a, a, a special blessing, a double portion to the pastor who preaches and teaches, so that he's freed up, obviously, to focus on preparing sermons and shepherding the flock and providing counseling. So there's nothing wrong with paying pastors. By all means, I think that's a beautiful model that is 
is encouraged in the New Testament. But for Paul himself, at this particular place in time, he's just reminding them he was a tent maker, he did work hard, he didn't demand money from the congregation. And then we also see your next sub-point says Paul was a personable friend. He was a personable friend. Again, he says there that, that he had been with them, how I lived among you. Again, he's not above them, he's not beyond them. It says again in verse 18, he lived among them. He had developed true friendship with the people that he ministered to. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, talk a little bit again about how he was sharing with them, had built relationships with those that he ministered to. Let me, let me just back up here and just say, well, how about you? How do you live your life? How do you live? Do you live a life where you show people? We're talking about leadership is inspiring others by how you live. Paul is a godly man. He's a hard worker. No one could attack his character. No one could attack his work ethic. No one could come against him and say, you weren't really sharing life together with us. He was a man who did what he did and he did it with the people. You know, when I, when I think about that, I can't help but think about running track and cross country when I was in high school, not quite as fast as these guys right here, uh, but I ran four years of track and cross country and I loved it, not because I liked running initially, I hated running. You know, the coach is like, come run 10 miles with us. I'm like, are you an idiot? Like, why would I do that? Why would you just go run 10 miles with somebody? You know, but he invited us out, my brother was involved, so I got involved in running and then coach ran with us. My cross-country coach, my track coach was not a coach, you know, like the, like the fat coach sitting over there eating donuts saying, run another lap. You know, our coach was out on the track with us doing laps with us. Now, he, he was a phenomenal runner. He ran at the University of Georgia and was a scholarship runner. But I just remember thinking, you know what, I just appreciate the fact that this guy's out here with us running. And that's, that's kind of like how we wanted to live life together, right? As a pastor, hopefully as a parent, as a parent, hopefully you're not just telling your kids, you got to do this, you got to do that. I mean, there's times you need to tell them that. Please tell them that at times. But there's also times you're like, hey, let's do this together. Let, let me help show you how this is done. Let's work hard together. It's living life together. And we see this going on in the ministry of Paul saying, look, I've been with you. I've worked hard with you. I, you guys know me. And I want you to imitate that as we seek to imitate Christ. Well, let's move on. Let's look at our third heading this morning. Again, just reminding these Ephesian elders of some things that he wants them to remember. He wants them to remember, number three, about just serving the Lord. Obviously, about serving the Lord. But here we see him emphasize with an attitude of humility. Verse 19, an attitude, your next blank, of humility. He says, you know, I was with you from the first day that I've been in Asia, and I was serving the Lord with all humility and then he says, with tears and with trials. But let's just start with this first one, with all humility. Certainly, we see here in Paul's letter to Timothy how Paul was claiming uh, to be the worst of sinners. It's one evidence of Paul's humility. He never claimed to be above them. You know, that passage in 1 Timothy is where Paul claims to be uh, the foremost of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. Well, there's just something refreshing about that, where somebody's like, hey, look, I'm an apostle. I'm called to preach to you. I will confront you lovingly when you're in sin. I'm going to call out the false teachers, but I'm going to live life with you, and I'm going to work hard with you, and I just want you to know I'm a sinner just like you. In fact, I'm the foremost of sinners, as he, in that passage in 1 Timothy, talks about how he would persecute the church of God, he, he, so he feels the guilt of that. He knows he's forgiven, but he still feels like, man, I can't believe I did that, and, and, and I am the foremost of sinners. That's a, a demonstration of the humility that Paul had. When we mess up, when we sin, when our pride is evidenced, are we quick to say, you know what, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I struggle in this area. This is an area that I need your prayers and I, I invite your account accountability to help me with the, the lust of the eyes and the, the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life that's discussed in 1 John 2.15. As leaders, hopefully we're like that. You know, we're not a perfect elder team, but when we get together as elders, we try to be really open and transparent. Hey, Adam, how are you doing? How are you doing in your marriage? How are you doing in your finances? What's going on in your home? You know, and I try to be open and vulnerable to share with those group of men that I love, that I respect, that I trust, that I can be real. I mean, can you imagine if I just had to show up at every elder meeting and say, perfect, it's all perfect. Have a perfect marriage, perfect kids. Our finances couldn't be better. You know, but I have to be like, you know what? Here's an area we're struggling. 
could you pray for us? You know, this is, an, this is an opportunity for me to be shepherded by my elder team as I want to do the same for them. And, and this is a little bit of what Paul is just being a little bit humble here, just saying, look, I was the chief of sinners. Humility is not just about recognizing what a sinner you are, but it's also of having the mindset, another aspect of humility, of, of I need to serve others. I, I need to humbly realize it's not all about me, another aspect of humility. I need to serve others, and that's the cross-reference I listed for you in Philippians 2, right, that, that we want to have the humility of Christ, the mind of Christ, which would mean we do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in that humility, we, we consider others as more significant than ourselves, looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interest of others, that hopefully as, a, as an elder, he's in challenging them, you got to be about serving others. It's not about you. Not about you looking for your position and defending your reasons for making a decision you made. Just, how about just loving people by serving them? This is what Paul wants to instill in these uh, Ephesian elders. Another aspect here, your next blank, with a heart of compassion. A heart of compassion. We see that again where he says that he had tears. It says in the middle of 19 that he was with them in humility, these Ephesian elders, and he was with them in tears. That shows, I think, a tender heart. It shows the, 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 the ability to empathize with maybe difficulties they were going through together. In fact, if you would do a quick study on Paul's empathy, he, it's recorded in scripture where he cried three times. Three times where he cried, I listed them out for you. Number one, because of those who did not know Christ, he sheds tears because of those who did not know Christ. He says in Romans 9, 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And he says he wished he could even be accursed or cut off for Christ's sake, for the sake of his brothers. And so we see great anguish. Some would say there also the great sorrow and anguish of, 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 of tears. The second place we see this would be in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, because of struggling and immature. That's your next blank. Because of struggling and immature believers. So he cries or shows great compassion for those who did not know Christ, and he does the same for those who did know Christ, but they're immature. In 2 Corinthians 2.4, we know the struggle of the church of Corinth. He said, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. He was really brokenhearted for some newer believers who still were really stuck in some sinful practices. And then he also cried or shared great compassion and, and anguish because of false teachers. That's the third one, because of the threat of false teachers. Notice what he didn't cry over. He didn't cry over his own trials. He didn't cry over his own in, insufficiency, inadequacy, beatings, whatever, wherever. He felt like it fell short. He, he cried for others, those who didn't know Christ, those who did know Christ, who struggled with maturing in Christ, and then just false teachers that deceived people in the church and led them astray. And so we're seeing here again, Paul was humble. Paul empathized with others. And Paul, your next blank, Paul was persistent even with continual trials. Your next blank, the word trials, with continual trials at hand. So we see the humility, we see the tears, and then it says, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So he is definitely uh, saying, yeah, it was tough. You know, there are times where I went through incredible trials that I had to face, and that was all in serving the Lord. As I served the Lord, it wasn't all rosy. It wasn't all, you know, a cakewalk. There were difficult trials at hand. Remember all kinds of trials we've read about throughout Acts, and I listed a lot of them for you in those cross-references that you can look through, but he faced many a trial, and yet he continued to persevere, and he continued to do exactly what God called him to do. You know, at serving the Lord ultimately results in great reward, but that doesn't mean it doesn't sometimes lead to great amounts of suffering. And so let, let me ask you this morning, are, are you serving the Lord like this, with humility, with compassion, and willing to face suffering? Or are you more trying to serve the Lord according to your own interests? Or are you truly exemplifying humility? And do you have that kind of compassion that we see here in Paul's heart? Because while he's writing to the Ephesian elders, I think in principle, this is what all of us should have as, as, as those who are uh, true Christians. And so the fourth heading, let's move on to number four. We also see here that Paul was declaring the truth. He was declaring the truth in verse 20. Your next blank says he was preaching it profitably. 
profitably. And that word doesn't mean he's making money. It just means, well, I'll tell you what it means, preaching profitably. He says, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. So first, when he says he didn't shrink back, the, the King James, the New King James Version says he kept nothing back. The NIV says he did not hesitate. The ESV here that we're looking at says to shrink back. He said, I didn't shrink back. That means to draw back or to withhold. So Paul was a straight shooter, right? He, he, ha- he held nothing back. He gave wise counsel. He preached the gospel. He talked about the holiness of God and the sovereignty of God and God's purpose. And he, and he did not withhold any doctrine, any principle, any truth, any exhortation, any admonition that was promised. Profitable. So if he knew it was going to help somebody, he's going to say it. And I think too many times in, in, in ministry, we don't want to offend others or in relationship. And so we're a little bit timid to speak truth into the life of another. And at other times, we're too eager, aren't we, sometimes to speak something into the life of the other. And we need to make sure it's not just a preference or not just like, well, if I were you, I would do this. So there's a balance to it. I get that. But I like how Paul's saying, look, I was not afraid to say what needed to be said. I said whatever I thought and I believe would be profitable for you to, to bring together a benefit for your sake. You know, that's how the word profitable is used in 2 Timothy 3.16, a familiar passage, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable. So we want all of God's word for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Never hold back the truth. I know that this, again, is a balance. There's an art to it. But never hold back the truth. When someone is in sin or someone is thinking thoughts that are contrary to the Bible, we've got to speak into that situation with humility, with compassion, and as graciously as we can, but also with the strength and with the vigor and with a, a, a conviction. Because if we don't confront others in their sin, then we're not loving them. We're just like, well, I don't want to offend them, and I, I know that this is going on and this is going on, but who am I to say? Well, look, if you have a relationship with that individual, then you have every right and, I would say, responsibility to just have a conversation about it. If nothing else, you could just say, hey, could I talk with you a little bit about how things are going in your marriage? Could I, you know, could I talk with you about how it's going with your child in this area you know, and it's like, oh, oh no, oh no. You know, it's like, well, well, what are we going to just fake it all the time? Like, hey, everything's great. Everything's fine. You know, this is where Paul's saying, I'm willing to, be, to speak into the life of the church, and I want to do it. Your next blank. I'm going to preach publicly. I'm going to do it by preaching publicly, how he says now that he did not shy away, you know, at the end of verse 20, teaching you in public and from house to house. So I love that about Paul again. He's going to do it publicly. There's no secret meetings here. There's no secret doctrine here. He taught publicly for the whole world to know. This is what we believe. That's why we're not afraid to say whatever it is that we say about the LGBTQ movement. You know, it's like, look, we believe this is what God's word says. This is what we do. There's no shame. There's nothing hiding. We want to be loving, but we want to be loving with God's truth. And so we preach that publicly. We print it publicly on our doctrinal statement for the whole world to know because that's what we want to do. We want to preach the word. But we also, as Paul says here, we want to be willing to preach it privately. Look at the very end of verse 20. He says, from public and from house to house. So he's going to say the same thing that he says from the pulpit in any, any public venue. He's going to do the same thing privately, house to house. Now remember, first century, new church, they don't have buildings yet. That's why they met in the synagogue, and then they would meet in the hall of Tyrannus, and then out by the river, we talked about that. So they don't have lots of buildings, and so they would obviously meet house to house. This is a part, a part of, the, of the reasoning that we would even emphasize as a church of the beauty of having small groups. That not only do we want to have, you know, a public gathering where we gather together because we're commanded to on the first day of the week and to, to preach the word and to public reading of scripture and to practice the ordinances, but we want to go from home to home and we want to be involved in each other's lives in that way. And so, you know, there's some people who say, well, it's all about house to house and it's both, right? It's public gathering and it's a private gathering. And if you're only involved in a public gathering, but you're not involved in any private gathering, can I just take a moment and say, shame on you. We want to shame you. And I mean that because I love you. It is not healthy for you to only show up on Sunday morning for one hour and you're never involved 
at all with any other Christian in your home or at a mutual meeting place in order to practice the one another's together. Because we're not the church that just says, come for great worship and biblical preaching and then go home and do whatever you want for the rest of the week. We're saying, come for preaching, come for service, come for worship, and come be involved in the life of others from house to house. Get involved in loving and sharing in Bible study and in prayer and in loving one another in each other's homes. And this leads us to our last one here, number five, what Paul's reminding them of his faithful ministry with the Ephesian elders. Number five, he's always testifying to the gospel, testifying to all people. Your next blank, he's testifying to all people, verse 21 testifying both to Jews and Greeks. So we see there all people, doesn't matter if you have a Jewish background, doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, he's gonna preach to both groups. I'm speaking to the Gentiles, Romans 11:13. 13, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles that I may magnify my ministry. And yet we know at the same time, Paul usually showed up at the synagogue and started preaching to the Jews until they would persecute him and push him out and then he would go to the Gentiles. But just notice he's preaching to everybody and understand the gospel's for all people. Does it matter your ethnicity? Does it matter your social status? Does it matter about anything? We wanna be faithful to testify of the gospel to all people, and then he's testifying, your next blank, he's testifying of repentance, testifying of repentance toward God, and so we know repentance is the word metanoia in the original language. It means a change of mind, a change of mind, which I believe leads to a change of heart, which leads to a change of behavior. So if, you're, if you have a change in mind, then it changes the conviction and the, and the affection of your heart because you, you've been transformed. And now that also changes your behavior. So repentance is more than saying, I'm sorry. You know, that, that's the first step, if you will. I'm sorry, there's a brokenness there, but there's a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of behavior. And this is what Christ preached. It's one of the first words off the lips of Jesus in, in Matthew 4:17. It's actually the very first word where it says, at that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is part of the gospel message, repent, Turn from the darkness of your heart, the sin in your life, and turn to Christ because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We see Peter preach that same message in Acts 2.38 at Pentecost when he's preaching about the Holy Spirit coming and what's happening and he preaches a gospel message and they're cut to the heart and then he says in Acts 2.38, repent, repent and be baptized. It's the same thing that Paul preached in Mars Hill, Acts 17 verse 30, the times of of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So this message of repentance is a faithful gospel message. And in addition to preaching repentance, he's also testifying, your next blank there, of faith. He's testifying of faith. And so we see there at the end of verse 21, and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The word pistos, the word for faith there, it's not a passive faith in nature. It's an active faith. Um, idea of you believe in something, you're exercising your own energy in, and yet at the same time, faith is a gift. So we're talking about here, just for a moment, as we wrap up this morning, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. And sometimes we get into that debate about which one of these two glorious doctrines is to come first. It's always a debate in theology class. Do you have to repent first and then you have faith? Or do you have faith first and then you repent? Is it repentance or is it faith? Well, often when the gospel, has anybody ever had that debate, by the way? You're out here and you're like, yeah, I've kind of thought through that. Do I repent and then get saved? Do I believe? And then because I believe, now I'm gonna go repent. Thank you, I have one person. Thank you over there. A, a young seminary student to be right here saying, yeah, I've thought through that. That's an important uh, question. So let me just take a little stab at it, all right? Which one comes first, repentance or faith? Often, when the gospel is proclaimed, we see both responses of repentance and faith. You know, we just shared that in the scriptures, like where Jesus talked about repentance, Peter talked about repentance, Paul talked about repentance in those passages we just mentioned. But Paul also, in Philippi, when the Philippian jailer was about to kill himself, and he says, what must I do? He says in Acts 16.31, he didn't use the word repent, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The Gospel of John doesn't even use the word repent. 
all through the gospel of John, it's believe, believe, believe. And so Christians, again, well, which one is it? Which one comes first? I think most Christians understand they're both important, and I'm saying they're both part of salvation. And I would just say this, there's no contradiction between these two. Both are necessary for salvation. Plus, I would just say, if you want me to put my cards on the table, I believe they happen somewhat simultaneously. That somewhat, it's the same event. William McDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary has written, in every genuine case of conversion, there are both repentance and faith. They are two sides of the gospel coin. Unless a person were duly repentant, saving faith would be impossible. On the other hand, repentance would be of no avail unless it was followed by faith in the Son of God. And so we're just kind of saying both are helpful, both are true, both are required. You can't pick one without the other. Sinclair Ferguson, well-known, respected, reformed theologian, discusses this in an excellent article that I read recently entitled Faith and Repentance. And he just writes just some tidbits from that article. He says, but which one comes first logically? Is it repentance or is it faith or does, it, or does neither have an absolute priority? There has been prolonged debates and reformed thought about this. Each of three possible answers has had its advocates. So he's like, hey, there's three positions you could have on this. One, W.G.T. Shedd insists that faith must precede repentance in order of nature. He writes, though faith and repentance are inseparable and simultaneous, yet in the order of nature, faith precedes repentance. And so Shed there in his argument, a systematic theologian on those grounds is saying that he thinks faith comes first. And then um, Sinclair Ferguson says, well, what about Louis Burkhoff? Louis Burkhoff, another heavyweight systematic theologian, appears to take the reverse position. There is no doubt that logically, Burkhoff writes, that repentance and the knowledge of sin precede the faith that yields to Christ in trusting love. So you got one heavyweight saying this one's first, one saying this one first, and then uh, Sinclair Ferguson says third, John Murray, another systematic theologian, insists that these issues raise unnecessary questions about the insistence that one is prior to the other, and this is futile. There is no priority. The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith, and the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with saving faith. And then Sinclair Ferguson gives his summary of it all. He said, this is truly a more biblical perspective. We cannot separate turning from sin and repentance and coming to Christ in faith. They describe the same person in the same action, but from different perspectives. And I think that's what I appreciate is just the balance of it. Both need to happen. And that's why back to our last verse here, Paul's talking about repentance toward God and he's talking about faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we've seen is in this passage, we've seen that Paul is remembering a little bit of his own personal testimony with the church of Ephesus. And what's been highlighted here is the fact that Paul was able to share with them his own life, important doctrine, and to avoid being lazy to choose pride or humility, I would say, over pride, to persevere in the midst of his trials, not to be afraid to say whatever needs to be said, and he wanted to preach and involve himself in that which would be profitable to others. And I just wonder if these same things would be things that you could highlight in your own life. I mean, look at the take-home section here. The first one says, how can we be an example to others and how we live with our time, our resources, and our ministry opportunities. You know, again, you evaluate Paul, and you shouldn't be like, well, I could never do that because I'm not an apostle. You should evaluate Paul and say, well, yeah, I appreciate what he did. I can't exactly follow everything he did, but you know, I hear some principles that the way he lived that I want to be an example because leadership, again, is inspiring others by how you live. Number two, are you serving the Lord with an attitude of humility, a heart of compassion, and even in continuing trials? And in third, how are you testifying to the truth of the gospel 
both publicly and privately. If you're here this morning and and you don't know Christ and you've just come to church, we're so glad that you've come and we want to call you to a real relationship with the Lord Jesus. And the way that happens is that you come to a place of repentance and faith, that you understand who Christ is, that he came, that he lived, and that he died and he was crucified for sinners like you and like me. And in order for you to be born again or come to faith or become a Christian, you have to repent. You have to turn from everything. You have to be convinced in your heart and in your mind through reading the gospel, the scripture, that Christ is who he said he was. And you have to abandon all of your life of sin. And the good news about that is that Christ washes away our sin when we repent. And when we believe with all of our hearts in the Lord Jesus, if that's you this morning and you say, you know what, I need to get my life right with God. After our last song, we'll have a couple of people right here next to this door close to our prayer room. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you about what it means to be a real Christian, what it means to truly give your life to God. And if you're here this morning and, and you already know Christ, but you're, you're struggling, you have a, 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 a prayer request, we want to pray to you, with you. We want to share life together. We don't want to just be the church that preaches and you go and live your Mary life. We want to talk with you, pray with you, serve you in any way that we can. Let's close together in prayer. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this first installment of Paul's interaction with the Ephesian elders. So many rich things that he's reviewing here that we want to be reminded of as well. And I just pray, God, that as a church, you would help us learn from this godly example. We know that Paul himself wasn't perfect at confessing he was the chief of sinners, but there's a great example here of a real person that's not deified, that's not fully God and fully man, just fully man, a broken sinner, saved by grace, who devoted himself to the ministry of the gospel, both publicly and privately. And I just pray that in our hearts, in our lives this morning, that we would have a desire to grow in our own walk, that we would have a desire to grow both in our own ministry, however formal or informal it might be, that we would want to preach the word both publicly and privately. Help us not to be afraid. Help us to be willing to say the things that you want us to say from your word, to speak the truth in love, and to do it in a way that would be profitable for others to hear and to receive into their lives. God, I pray that you would be glorified as we sing this last song, as we consider what we've learned this morning, and as we discuss it together in our homes and in our small groups, that you would be first in our hearts in all things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.